So follow that. Yeah. Excellent. It's really exciting. Um, it's really exciting to just see God's work amongst us being recognised for what it really is. And uh, I just think there's been a lot of journey behind that award, actually. But I think it's been worth it, don't you? Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, Nathan. At the beginning of uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, there's a, a verse uh, which follows the events of the Garden of Eden. And it's God talking to the serpent. The serpent who'd said to Eve, did God really say? And then we know what happened. But God says to the serpent, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between the woman, you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now on the leaders weekend and then following in the prayer meeting and then again this morning, there have been different people declaring what God has actually been doing with them. Declaring things that they've been freed from. Declaring attitudes that God has corrected and, and stepping free. But what I want to look, about, look at this morning is I just want to unpack a bit that verse because the thing is that Whilst we're busy declaring those things, there is a danger that the serpent can try to bite us on the heel. And I want to look a bit about what that is. And I want to look about the thing is, he can't bite us on the heel if we're busy crushing his head. It just doesn't work. So I want, I want to look at how God has equipped his church to crush the head of the serpent. Because we know that the serpent doesn't really represent a snake. The serpent represents the enemy. The serpent represents him who would set himself up in the place of God, who would cause us to doubt what God has said, who would cause us to, to doubt his love for us, who would cause us to stop listening to what he's saying and start listening to something else. And God's ordained that his church should crush the serpent's head so that his voice can't be heard, so that his lies can't be followed. And... Um, Partly this has come out of an email which Penny sent around. Is Penny out or in? She's out. But Penny sent a, an email uh, this, this week just really talking about this whole issue. And I'd already prepared what I wanted to say, but it just seemed to fit so nicely that I thought, I can't let this go by, because I think this is a prophetic word for us. When Chris came up this morning, he didn't know what I got in my notes. But what did Chris say? You know, how important it is that when you've given testimony, to recognize that there's an opportunity for the enemy to try and sneak in and, and to, to steal something away. And we need to get behind those that are giving testimony because actually God's doing amazing things with them. So sometimes we can fall back into a cycle that we have repented of. And I want to look at how we 
overcome it. So one of the keys for this, I believe, is our accountability. Now, for some of us, accountability, um, it, it, um, it kind of sounds a bit scary. But what I want us to particularly understand is that accountability in the church is based on love. When I'm accountable to a manager in my workplace, he might well have a job description in front of him, and he might well be saying to me, you have done that, you haven't done that, you haven't done that. And he may or may not be doing that in a loving way. But in the church environment, God's given us one another to be accountable to, so that actually we can live the way that God wants us to. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. God's going to call us to account. We're accountable to God. I'd rather have a few conversations now than have missed it then. So why do I need other people? Well, sometimes we don't see the truth. When I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, sometimes what I see is not what what actually the mirror is showing me. You have to not be distracted by his... Yeah, yeah, anyway. So, in our natural state, the natural thing we would want to do is to justify our faults, and blame others. And we see that in the story in Genesis. It wasn't my fault. It was the woman you gave me. We've been trying that for quite a long time, haven't we, men? And she said, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. But each person is accountable for their decisions. We deny, we squash down, we minimize things that we know to be true. We, we make things more attractive than they really are. You know, I, I didn't really lie. I just felt I couldn't exactly tell the truth. If I told them the truth like that, well, that, that, would, have, you know, that would have been terrible. So I, I just said it was all right. And we need people that will help us to protect ourselves from ourselves and the desires of our own hearts. In psychology, there's something called cognitive dissonance, which is a very long word for this time of the morning, but it's basically the ability to distance your head from what your body is doing. So, you know, it's the ability to say, well, I am the shape I am because of my genes, rather than because I don't exercise and I eat too much. Or it's the ability to say, and in my case, I'm saying, right? Don't, don't let me have just judged all the people that are above a certain weight. I didn't mean that. But, you know, uh, or, um, you know, I know jolly well I've been given some physiotherapy exercises, and if I got on and did those, then things might start to get better. Because it's not my fault. I'm distancing myself from the response. So, you see... The thing is that the enemy would seek to strike us on the heel. And, um, and I want to ask you this morning, what is your heel? Now, this um, picture is from ancient Greece, and uh, Achilles 
you might have heard of was a warrior who was invincible in battle, but had a gap in his armor in his heel. And he was made impotent, unable to fight because of an injury to his heel. If you have an injury in your heel, David, it can put you out of action for quite a long time, can't it? And it takes a very long time for things to get put right in nature. Is there a place of vulnerability that you overlook? We can't afford to miss the significance of the landing points we give the enemy in our lives, the chinks in our armor. And I also think it's no accident that if I'm walking this way, my heel is that way. And if I've said I've given this up and I'm not doing this anymore and I go this way, the enemy can't get me in the head, he can't get me here, but he, he can get to that bit because that's the bit I present to him. So I think it's really important that we understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In some of these things that we're declaring, they are spiritual realities. And because they're spiritual realities, we need to fight them spiritually as well as practically. Okay, what was the heel for David? Well, the story in David of Bathsheba, I'm not going to go through all the detail, but um, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the story, you can pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it goes through to chapter 12, and I may pick up on it in a moment uh, in some detail, but I just want to give you the background. So David is about 50 years old. He'd been king for about 20 years. He was a gifted musician, a mighty warrior, and a capable leader. He had an intimate walk with God. He had a healthy family. He had a stable political position and an unbroken string of military victories. David was a king who had it all. But something happened. It came to the time of year when kings go off to war. And David didn't. David stayed at home. And whilst he was at home, he went up onto the roof because he had nothing else to do. And whilst he was up on the roof, he saw Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife, bathing. Every age has its own temptations. Every age has a different manifestation of temptation. But actually, you know what? He didn't face any different temptations, really, than we face today. He saw a beautiful woman. And what went through his mind is what goes through the mind of most men when they see beautiful women, if they're not dead. And he had a second thought. And he had a second look. And suddenly, with nobody to answer for, answer to, he ended up in a situation where he broke three of the Ten Commandments. This is the man who all those things are still true about. He's about 50 years old. He's not a young lad. He's been king for 20 years. He's got a stable family. He's got a happy home. And he ends up committing adultery, 
He, well, he covets his neighbor's wife, he commits adultery, and then he ends up murdering Uriah, who wasn't a faceless person. Uriah was one of his mighty men. Uriah was someone he'd walked with day by day. He was someone who had said he was willing to die for him. When he invites Uriah back from the battlefield in order to scheme a way to get him killed off, Uriah's not having any of it. Uriah's saying, no, I need to be in the battle. The basic issues that we face today remain the same. We may not be on the rooftop, but we may be on the computer. We may not be on the rooftop, but we may be watching TV. No temptation is more powerful than any other. All temptation can be overcome in the power of the Spirit. That's what the Word says. Anyone who is tempted should pray so that the Spirit will give them a way out. David loved Uriah. I think David probably loved, therefore, Uriah's wife. But his lust for Uriah's wife got in the way of that love and blinded him to what he needed to do. But how could it happen? How could someone who had it all end up in that place? See, most people don't experience a sudden blowout. We don't generally... Decide, get up one morning and decide to move in with the woman next door. That's all right, Christine, I'm not, it's not a plan. <laughs> More often, it's a slow leak that leads to disaster. Somebody once said it's, it's like our small surrenders. We deceive ourselves by small surrenders. David had actually got a wife, but that wasn't enough. So he had some more. And then, because that wasn't enough, he had a harem. I don't think any of those things particularly pleased God. So then when he's up on the roof and he sees another woman that he quite liked to have, hey, why don't I just take her? And he does. Step by step, the enemy works his way into our lives. If we don't take captive those thoughts, if we don't take captive those temptations, if we don't take captive those small surrenders, then we can end up a great distance away from where God wanted us to be. We can still be doing the job. David hadn't stopped being a king, actually, but he wouldn't be in the king that God wanted him to be. David was the king and he was at home. When kings go to war, he's at home. So what's going on? It happens because he's not accountable to anyone. There's no one who he's sharing his heart with. And then Nathan comes to him and points out his, his wrong, confronts him. See, small steps. Now, I, I realize that there's a temptation. Ha, huh, temptation. There's a temptation here for you, for you to just be hearing about sex, about temptation in that, in that respect, Okay? It's not just about that. Recently, God showed me how I've become quite hard in the heart. Recently, God showed me that because of, because of a fear of losing relationship with people, 
Uh, God, God showed me it was, um, i just just share this. In life, we have people we meet, and there are people sometimes we're parted from, sometimes because they move away, sometimes because they die. And God showed me that in that, I was afraid of that parting. I was afraid of there being, me being too close so that when that parting happened, which has to happen one day, for everyone I know, one way or another, I'm going to be parted. That fear of parting was affecting how I was loving people now. And I realized that actually I'd not started off to have a hard heart. I'd not started off to grow distant. And in many ways, people didn't notice the distance. But I knew the distance that had emerged because it was inside me. And so I want to declare again that actually God's delivered me from that. That I won't be afraid of parting because actually God's given me the now for now. And what he's given me for now is amazing. You are amazing. You are an amazing bunch of people, and God's joined us together for now. And here we are, walking together, and God's life is bubbling up in testimony all over the place. Isn't it? Yeah? I mean, just hearing the testimonies this morning, there are more to come. God's life is bubbling up, and I'm so excited that God has put us together for a time like this. So it doesn't have to be you're scheming to get your best friends, or one of your best friends, uh, killed off so you can marry their wives. It doesn't have to be some big thing. But small steps taken consistently can move us a long way from where God wanted us to be. And the truth of the matter is that what's whispered in the night will be shouted from the rooftop. I'd rather you knew about some of the things that I've messed up on now then you discover later, oh, he wasn't much cop. I thought he cared about me, but really, that was what was going on. Jesus was with a crowd of many thousands, and uh, they all began trampling on one another to get near him. And Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the, in the rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I'm not talking about God dredging up some kind of confessed sin that happened to you when you were 14 years old and presenting it to the entire church on a Sunday morning. That's not what I'm... That, if you've confessed sin, God has removed it from you. In fact... The Bible says he's thrown them into a sea of forgetfulness. They're not going to come back. You don't need to go dredging. God, once you've dealt with it, you've dealt with it. But it's talking about living in a way that pretends it's not really there. And one of the things that we were talking about on the Leaders Weekend was this repository of rubbish that we can have inside us that God wants us to empty out so that he can pour his spirit in. And so, hypocrisy is the thing that upsets God more than anything else. Saying that we mean one thing, 
or that we believe one thing, and living in a way that doesn't reflect it. Well, there's nothing that, that offends his heart more. Nathan puts it like this to David. You did it in secret, but I'm going to do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So when David is confronted with the evil that he's done, David has a choice. He can confess it or he can deny it. What's he going to do? See, God doesn't actually require perfection. Although he's provided a way for us to live free from sin, what he, can, what he wants is honesty. And he wants us to be in relationship with one another and being honest. Not presented some veneer. You know veneer is what you put on cheap wood to make it look more expensive. I don't want to be a bit of chipboard that's covered with some teak. I want to be teak all the way through, or whatever. David's response is, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. I'm not going to go into the rest of the story, because that isn't quite the end. And there's quite a few consequences for what David has got himself into. But the important thing is that David had that revelation that he might have sinned against Uriah, he might have sinned against Uriah's wife, he might have sinned against Nathan, he might have sinned against lots of people, but primarily where he'd messed up was in his relationship with God. Nothing can be more cruel than a leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing is more compassionate than a severe reprimand which calls another Christian or a brother back from their path of sin. So, Nathan, I would not have liked to be Nathan in that story, I don't think. I'm not saying I wouldn't like to be Nathan, but I wouldn't like to have Nathan's job in that story. I reckon that would have taken some guts. It's a polite way of putting it. He's gone to a king who is his friend. He's gone to a king who's been king for 20 years and said, what you've done is has displeased the Lord. And then he's delivered judgment. So we need people that are going to hold us, we are going to hold ourselves to accountable, be accountable to. That are going to love us enough to confront us. That are going to, we're going to actually open our lives and be honest with. Because if we don't live like that, then those small steps amount to a great distance. It's possible, taking another story, a story from Elisha, if you look at this, you can look at this later, 2 Kings 5, 20 to 27, Elisha, Gehazi, and the healing of Naaman. So Naaman is this uh, rich, rich guy, comes to Elisha because he's got leprosy. And it's a real embarrassment when you're rich and bits of your body keep falling off. And I imagine it's quite painful. And it's not very nice at all. So he comes to Elisha, and Elisha gets him to wash seven times. He doesn't want to do it. He does it. Um, not the washing. It's the washing in a dirty river, I think, that probably really offended him. Um, and uh, he does it, and he gets healed. Now, Gehazi is 
Elisha's sidekick. He's with him all the time. He's had opportunities to share heart. He could have picked up exactly what the prophet wanted. In fact, you would have, it would have looked like Eli, uh, that Gehazi was accountable to Elisha. So what happens is that um, Naaman offers Elisha some money. He's so pleased with his healing. He says, let me give you something. And Elisha says, no, 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 you don't need to. So then what happens is he walks off and Gehazi thinks to himself, hmm, who wanted to give money? He said, no, but maybe I could get some. Runs after him. This, this is me. That's my attempt at drama, okay? <laughs> maybe I could get some. Hey, Nevin, my master didn't really mean to say nothing. He really meant to say, and then he writes a list. And so he goes home then with a whole load of stuff. And he really messes up big time. Elisha's greedy. Elisha's not been on the roof looking at other women. He's been counting the pennies and thinking, we haven't got much. But that Nehman fella, he's got a heck of a lot. And I'd like some of that. Elisha asks him questions. I might actually, as this is only a seven-verse story, I might just give you a quick rundown, because otherwise I think it's a danger we might just miss something. See what God prompts. So Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was my master was too easy on Neman. This Aramean. I don't know what accent that is, but it's something. <laughs> By not accepting what he brought. Okay, sounds like a meerkat, meerkat, yes. Mm, compare the meerkats, yeah. Um, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurries after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. He said, is everything okay? Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of prophets have just come from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, have two talents, says Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them. And then he tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them um, to two of his servants and they carried him ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and he put them away in the house. He sent the men away and left. Then he went in and stood before his master Elisha. Okay. So far, so good. Except... He's only got this money because he's lied. And we know that lying generally comes from the serpent. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Your servant didn't go anywhere, says Gehazi. <laughs> no. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or manservants and maidservants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. And Gehazi got went from Elisha's presence, and he was leprous as white as snow. 
It's possible to spend a lot of time with someone but be in it for what's in it for me. And God's wanting us to spend time with one another but be looking out for one another. God wants us to actually catch heart, which might might not mean we've learned it all or we get it all right, but we're accountable. It's It's not a power thing. God is the power. He's the one who I'm going to stand before, and he's going to judge me. He's the power. But I want you to correct me where I'm wrong. I want you to love me enough, to love me enough to not be lenient with my faults and to point out where I've messed up. Elisha's not trying to trap his servant by asking questions. He's trying to set him free. Throughout the Bible, we find God using questions to open things up. And I think that that's very important for those of us who, when we're talking to one another, don't just say, this is what you did, you silly boy, or silly man, or silly girl, silly woman, or silly something else. If you're talking to the cat, you can be talking to the cat. Probably won't have that much impact, but, you know. This is, it's about asking questions. When God comes into the Garden of Eden, he says to Adam, where are you? He knew where he was. He didn't need to have that information. When Elisha said, where have you been? He's not saying, where have you been? He's giving him an opportunity to confess. We need to give one another that opportunity to confess. God is never at a loss for information. He gives us an opportunity to be honest. You see, the thing is, actually, it's quite easy to fool somebody. And I don't know, but if Gehazi and Elisha were just them, in a way, Gehazi might have thought, I can get away with this. But what would have changed it is if Gehazi was also part of a group of friends who were with him all the time. And I think that's what God's calling us to as a community. More shared life, a higher level of a relationship. I can't pretend to be something else all the time. Sooner or later, you will see me for who I am. And when you see me for who I am, then you'll know who I really am, if that makes sense. Uh, Yeah? Having a circle of friends who I'm open and honest with is, is as powerful as having one person. I'm not saying we should share all our secrets with everyone. That probably wouldn't be helpful. But having a smaller number of folk who who see us regularly aren't over there in the consulting room so that I manage to get through this half-hour interview so I sound like I'm reasonably okay. You know, kind of like a head teacher's review with a normal member of staff. You know, you just about wing it for half an hour and then you go back to the classroom and the kids are there and you're thinking, this isn't really like I said it was. God wants us to be the same 24-7. I just thought um, it was relevant to think about this today and I think this is what we've been going through. Many of us have... um, Let me show you a little picture. It's not new, but it's what we call the Reformation Roundabout. God can sometimes allow us to see something that's wrong. And we confess to it. When we confess to it, there should be godly sorrow. 
2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. If you're just feeling guilty about something and never changing or attempting to change or confessing or doing anything, it's a dead end, literally. You will die. One way or another, you're going to die. What God wants us to do is to find the newness of life. And when we repent, we can be reformed. And it's between repentance and reformation, that's where we need to watch our heels. That's where we need to watch out for the enemy who's looking to catch us, to get us to slip back into old ways of thinking, slip back into the same reduced view we have of ourselves. God actually intends us to walk clearly because he's got our back. God wants us, sorry, the enemy wants us to stay in that place of guilt and failure to have a wrong view of ourselves. You know, one of the things that signs, gives us an indication of this is what weight we're carrying. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you because my load is easy and my burden is light. When you're feeling burdened down with things, another thing that spoke to me um, uh, from, from our weekend away, for those of you that weren't here, what, the story of Elisha, and the story of Elisha, the call of Elisha, he's, he's trying to plough a field uh, and it's a drought, and the ground is really, really hard, but he has a huge number of oxen to help him. And uh, he needs the huge number of oxen, because otherwise the plough wouldn't work. And God kind of spoke to me about that I was trying to pull a plough, and the ground was really hard, and I just felt like I was trying to do it. But he was saying, look, you've got all these oxen. And as the life is bubbling up amongst us, that's what we are, you know? That's, that's, the life, that's the life that God's put in us. And after I, after I confessed this uh, difficulty I was having, I have felt I've been standing a bit different, which is actually quite significant because I do have to stand different, have bad posture as well. Mm, mm. Literally. But God speaks to us through physical things. There are things sometimes, sometimes God uses physical things to get hold of our attention. You might have pain in your body. Jesus says, there's a lot of pain in mine. When we had that, just that time of openness, and we're in the prayer meeting later, there is a lot of pain in the body of Christ. And I'm not just talking about when he was crucified. And God wants us to, to, to know that he knows if I've got a pain in my leg and I can't ignore it, he can't ignore the pain that you feel. He can't ignore it. It's there. He wants you to be able to walk free of it, to be reformed. Those are very big words. This is my shorter version, shorter word version. Sometimes God helps us to realize where we got it wrong. And we have to come to that place that David came to and say, how could I have done this? It's God I've messed up with. Confession is saying the same thing about my sin as God does. It's not minimizing it. It's not saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. Oh, everybody does it. Oh, there's lots of it about. Oh, it's just an attitude of the time. Everyone in my school is like this. We all moan about the head teacher. That's what we do. 
God wants us to actually fess up and say, this is, this is wrong. We need to choose then to step into the new he has for us. There is a new way of being he has for us, to be reformed. We can experience the power for change. He doesn't just show us a, a future that's possible and leave us thinking, well, that would be nice. Otherwise, we're down the dead end of guilt and, and failure. God wants us to step into that new. So we need to learn to crush the serpent's head because the serpent will try to get us back. When God's shown us something that needs to change, and I've said, yep, that's right, I recognize that. That's something you've spoken to me about, Lord. I'm going to confess to it, and I'm going to move on. The serpent doesn't want to let you go. But Jesus' blood is stronger. We, he's given us his body to deliver us from sin. And he's done that spiritually on the cross, and he does it practically with one another. So as we crush the serpent's head, who do you connect with that you can be completely honest and open with? Who helps and encourages you in your walk with God? Are you the same, regardless of your company, I don't mean by that. <laughs> do, I, do I sit in the pub with my mates and get my Bible out and start saying, what do you think about verse 26? And then at group, I say, does anyone want a beer? I'm not really talking about, I'm not really talking about that. What I'm talking about is about my standard of rightness. So I can be down the pub with my mates and I can be talking to them about things that matter not putting on the front, being vulnerable, having a circumcised heart. And I might risk getting hurt, but that's not an excuse. I might be afraid of people leaving, leaving me, little me, all on my own. But that has not, that cannot guide how I love. Are there little steps that you've taken in the wrong direction? Are you aware of a distance that has appeared? Because there's power to change. Power to change today. We can be in relationships. We can have no significant relationships. We can be in a relationship that we've abused, that we've let people think we're being honest, when actually... Frankly, we're not. And we can just be closed off, have no-go areas where we don't let God in. You know, if you don't let others in, there's a good chance you've actually shut the door to God. When David was on the roof and he took that second look, he couldn't have done that and be still looking at God. God wants us to be in connection with him all the time. That's what he's made us for, to be in connection with him to walk in connection with him, to know him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to know that love. And every time we choose to turn aside, it breaks that connection. We need to come back. So, uh, 
Does anyone identify with any of these things that I'm talking about? This sort of distancy thing that builds up. You know, I believe that God is, has woken us up. That there, is, there are some wells that God has redug with our help, as it were. There's a new life that's bubbling up. In that story of Isaac that we looked at as a church a few months back, some of the wells, one of the wells is called a well of living water. A well in a spacious place. God's given us a glimpse of something, and I believe that as we step forward together, we'll see increasingly different things coming to light. It's no accident that what has happened for us is happening for us in an ongoing way. So let's be aware that our heel, of whatever our heels are, those weak points where the enemy would try to get a landing point, confess them, have others stand with us, and let's walk clearly with that new yoke, that yoke that Jesus has for us, that we can carry, because he's alongside. If I try to do it without him, it's not going to work. But with him, I can do all things. Uh, I've got a, a song, which I've used before, uh, that I'd just like to finish with, and then we're going to move into some worship. But there will also be opportunity for people to give testimony. Um, this song I used, I think... I think I worked out. I, you, you heard it in May. But I believe we're in a season where some of us are going to find we've been doing things and they've not been working. There are new things that God has for us. That's certainly true. But I think some of us are going to throw out the nets on the other side. So the new thing is just like what we've always been doing, pretty much. And you're going to say, well, what's the point of that? I've tried that before. It's not, you know, it didn't work before. But as we do that thing under the anointing and grace that God's giving us, so there's going to be a new way of stepping forward and enjoying his grace.